Welcome to Show Me History. I'm your host, Amy Blankenship. Forgive me while I indulge in a trip down memory lane for just a bit before we get to the heart of today's episode. When I was a little girl, I would spend quite a bit of time with my grandmother, and she would often talk about her days as a fashion design student. She attended Hadley Technical Institute back in the 40s and wanted to be a fashion designer or professional seamstress. Needless to say, this didn't quite pan out since a world war and life got in the way. She was a wonderful seamstress and made dresses up until she passed away. She tailored clothes and made outfits for extra money while raising five boys. She would make dresses for myself and my cousins each Christmas, and sometimes we got a matching dress for our dolls, too. I would spend most of my summer afternoons with my grandmother designing and sewing outfits for my Barbie dolls. I would tell her my idea, she'd sketch it out and make a pattern, and then we'd cut out the fabric and sew it all together. I thought this was brilliant and had the best dress Barbies in my neighborhood. While I cherish these memories and the time spent with my grandmother, I always had the same thought. How does someone from St. Louis become so interested in fashion and design? How is it possible that she has such a keen eye for colors and lines? We're in the middle of the country, far from any fashion hub. I had a similar thought process when going to Levine Hat Company on Washington Avenue with my dad. He loved hats and would make an occasional trip to the city for a new hat. Every time we went, he would tell me of the heydays of Washington Avenue. He claimed that at one time, it was the place to be with stores selling any kind of clothing or accessory imaginable, packed with people and stores. Even as a history nerd back then, I enjoyed these tales, but I couldn't imagine this street, Washington Avenue, to be bustling with industry, clothing stores, and crowds of people. To me, in the early to mid-1990s, the street looked practically empty. At the time, I did not realize or know that St. Louis had a fashion scene that was second only to New York City. It had been a very fashion-forward city, full of innovative ideas, and housed headquarters for international clothing companies. St. Louis had an immense fashion and garment industry for over a hundred years. So, my dear listeners, today we will talk about the history of the fashion and garment industry in St. Louis. As with most things in St. Louis, you could say that it all started with Pierre Laclede and Auguste Chaudot. St. Louis was founded as a fur trading post in the 1760s. Traders would bring their pelts to the warehouse and the post, where they were inspected, sorted, and sold to merchants. They traded furs from buffaloes, beavers, fox, raccoons, deer, everything you could think of. A majority of this business was conducted on present-day Laclede's Landing. St. Louis's location on the Mississippi River made it an ideal location for trade and commerce. The fur trading industry flourished. In the early 1800s, it became rather fashionable for men to sport beaver fur hats. Not necessarily the Davy Crockett model we tend to think of, but more of a fancy top hat. As fashion trends changed to adorning hats with more luxurious fabrics such as silk, the beaver pelts were in less demand. However, fur coats and accessories like muffs and capes were still in demand. As a result, fur trading remained part of the St. Louis economy well into the 19th century. Sadly, all the physical evidence of this fashion industry is gone. The last two remaining warehouses of the fur industry and the wharf were demolished in the 1960s to make room for the Gateway Arch. As St. Louis grew, it became a stopping point for many traveling west. 
It became a hub of dry goods and merchants taking advantage of the city's popularity. During this time, the garment and fashion industry mainly consisted of merchants selling fabric and notions to consumers in order to make their own clothing. The wealthy sought tailors to make clothing for them. Apart from military uniforms, ready-made clothing was not available. Clothes had to be handmade, and prior to the 1840s, it had to be hand-sewn. In 1846, Elias Howe patented the first sewing machine. This revolutionized the fashion industry. Garments of all types could be mass-produced. Garment factories began appearing in all major cities all over America, including St. Louis. Mainly men's clothing and shoes were the focus of these factories, as women's fashion the times required a tailored fit that couldn't be achieved in mass production. The opening of Eads Bridge in 1867 helped develop Washington Avenue as a commercial center. The bridge terminated right at Washington Avenue. Train service on the bridge increased travel and the ability to move goods in and out of the city. Soon the area would become known as the Garment District. The boundaries of the Garment District are Delmar Boulevard to the north, Locust Street to the south, and Eads Bridge and Mississippi River to the east, and 18th Street to the west, and all of this is focused on Washington Avenue. By the 1890s, some retailers in St. Louis began selling women's separates. These were ready-made pieces, often basic skirts and blouses. By this time, Washington Avenue contained a variety of clothing and shoe manufacturing companies. Also housed in the garment district were factories producing all elements needed to create clothing and accessories. Tanners, milliners, tailors, haberdasheries, weavers, threaders, textiles, drapers, cobblers, and fullers. Companies had various warehouses and manufacturing plants in St. Louis to create their goods. From fabric to thread and even buttons, St. Louis had its own fashion ecological system. Around this time, many large companies on the East Coast relocated to St. Louis. Labor and supplies were cheaper, and for the most part, labor unions had yet to reach this area of the garment industry. The central location of the city and an ample supply of warehouse space made St. Louis an ideal location. In the 1910s, a change in the main mode of transportation created a change in the fashion industry. As cars became more readily available to the masses, unique clothing and accessories were developed. Such things as dusters, goggles, weatherproof, waterproof clothing, gloves, and hats were created to accommodate traveling and early model cars. The production of these specialized clothing spurred the popularity of St. Louis garment and fashion industry. In the 1920s, the U.S. National Bureau of Standards became involved in the garment industry. At this time, ready-made garments were widely available from a large number of companies, but there was no consistency or standardization in sizing. The Bureau created standard measurements and sizes for industry for men, women, and children's clothing. The system is pretty much still in use today. In 1929, Irving Sorger sought to revolutionize the clothing industry for young ladies. He was a merchandising manager for Klein's department store in St. Louis. He realized the industry offered no real fashionable options for young ladies, nothing youthful and stylish in their size. So he met with design students at Washington University to address the issue. They formed a think tank and created the idea of junior size clothing. 
they adjusted sizing and measurements to fit teens and younger ladies. Now, the younger generation had the option of clothing that fit in the newest fashions. The Great Depression of the 1930s brought about hard times for everyone. At the beginning of the 1930s, the St. Louis garment industry lacked organized and recognized labor unions. And what I mean by this is there were labor unions, but most were not recognized by local companies and therefore unable to provide a lot of protection and resources to the employees. Working environments were quite horrible for some of the people during this time, like basically sweatshop conditions, low wages, long hours, and terrible treatment of the employees. But for many during the 30s, this was the only job for the entire family, so they couldn't afford to voice their complaints and lose their job. I'm going to use this time to segue to a discussion about the garment labor unions in St. Louis. So let's jump back a little bit in time and talk about Fanny Sellers. She was a pioneer in labor organization in St. Louis. She was born in Ohio in 1867 and moved with her family to St. Louis in 1875. They settled in the Cary Patch area. She was essentially raised in labor unions. Her father was a prominent member among unions for steamboat workers. And in 1898, she became a widow. With four children to support, she began working as a seamstress for Marks and Haas. This building is now known as the Knickerbocker Lofts on North 13th Street near Washington Avenue. The company had horrible working conditions, long hours, and ridiculously strict rules for its employees. One such rule was that employees were not permitted to use the company's elevators. They had to use the stairs to reach the various floors of work. In 1910, a tailor employed by Marks and Haas used an elevator to reach his work floor. He had tuberculosis and the stairs were just too much for him. This gentleman was fired for his actions. All of the other tailors in the building walked out and Fanny organized the female workforce and they joined the walkout. After almost a full year of picketing, Marks and Haas recognized the women of the company and the United Garment Workers Union. Fanny went on to organize unions in other factories along Washington Avenue as well. She became well-known not only in St. Louis, but nationwide. In 1919, she made a trip to Pennsylvania to assist steelworkers with a strike. There was a violent clash between the workers and the company's police force. And it's not quite clear what happened, but Fanny's body was found on the street. She had been shot in the back and her head beaten in. So the union Fanny belonged to, the United Garment Workers Union, was a predecessor for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU. They were founded in 1910, and in 1934, they established a southwestern branch of the union with its headquarters in St. Louis. This union was created based on the labor industry and not specific skills or trades. So all workers in the industry would be in the same union regardless of the actual job they held. Its membership consisted mainly of female and immigrant workers. The development of the ILGWU in St. Louis represented emerging as several local unions. The group represented all occupations in the garment industry, such as cloakmakers, dressmakers, cutters, pressers, embroiderers, knit good workers, hatmakers, and wastemakers. The ILGWU was more than a union to help improve working conditions and wages. It played a vital part in its members' lives. 
With education programs, the union provided classes in dance, music, and literature. Um, Members would often put on plays or pageants throughout the year. Later, the union would provide classes in labor education and leadership. The transition from open shops to unionized labor was a violent time across the nation and in St. Louis. During one picketing strike session at Curly Clothing Company on Washington Avenue, the pickers would attack women walking down the street and strip them of their clothing, all the time yelling and shouting that the clothes they wore were the result of hard labor and low wages. Another violent incident occurred at Forest City Manufacturing Company. On February 6, 1935, the ILGWU ordered a strike against Forest City Manufacturing Company. They were a maker of cotton dresses. Forest City had hired workers to act as spies. They set up a system to track employees and potential union troublemakers. The company used these spies to lure strikers into committing violent acts in order to win court injunctions and stop them from picketing. This was actually pretty standard operations at the time. Workers at the company felt that forest manufacturing was in violation of the National Recovery Act. This act established fair trade regulations to help industries get back on their feet after the Great Depression. It allowed for the establishment of standard working hours, minimum rates of pay, and regulations in working conditions. Also, the company had promised to rehire employees who had previously went on strike in 1933, and Forest City broke that promise. As a result, at 2.30 p.m. on February 6, 1935, 446 of its 500 employees walked out to march in the street. The picketing for this strike was said to be rather brutal. Multiple attempts by the police failed to break up fights and other violent acts. The strike lasted almost a year and eventually reached a settlement in early 1936. So in 1935, at the beginning of the strike at Horace City, Congress passed the Wagner Act. It was a piece of pro-labor legislation allowed employees to legally form and join unions, and companies had to cooperate. It gave employees rights to organize, engage in collective bargaining units, bargain for, and take collective actions. It also created the Labor Relations Board. St. Louis obtained other garment industry unions as time went on. The Immaculated Clothing Workers of America represented workers in the men's clothing industry. There's also the Textile Workers Union of America. In the mid-1990s, most of the garment industry unions merged to form one union entitled Unite. The union is still very strong today, fighting for safe work conditions, the right to organize, and fair wages for its employees. Now that we've covered unions, let's return back to our timeline. So we kind of left at uh, the Great Depression. So what comes after that, everybody? World War II. So World War II brought government contracts for shoes, boots, repair of boots, leggings, parachutes, and tents. Many St. Louis manufacturers redesigned their operations to accommodate these contracts. 20% of all shoes made in America at this time were made in St. Louis. Along with contracts also came rationing. Rationing affected all aspects of American life during World War II, including the garment industry. Shoe rationing limited the number of pairs of shoes a person could purchase in a given year. 
Rationing Regulation 85 specifically addressed textiles. It dictated restrictions on hem lengths, color and type of fabric that could be used, types of clothing that could be produced, pocket size and number, sleeve circumferences, number of buttons, cuffs, and frivolous decorations on clothing. There were rather hefty fines for companies not abiding by these restrictions. The only exceptions to Regulation 85 were wedding gowns, religious vestments, burial shrouds, and clothing for children up to age four. These restrictions led to the companies developing ways to circumnavigate the system of regulations and the design of synthetic fabrics. Programs were developed to recycle shoes when they wore out. The leather from shoes was repurposed into jackets, gloves, and other things. The Hoy Shoe Company was a leading shoe manufacturer in St. Louis. They had an ingenious idea for transforming what they do into what they could do now with rationing. During the war, they began making sandals out of leather straps from making military boots. Rebranded as Saltwater Shoes, the company is still in existence today. The years following World War II saw a change in the fashion industry. Pants had become very popular for women, and in general, people were dressing more casual in everyday life. Companies specializing in dresses needed to shift their focus to more casual apparel. Throughout the 30s and 50s, Washington Avenue was in its heyday. Boasting such stores and manufacturers as Miscellane, Toby Lane, Levine Hat Company, Brown Shoe, Sticks Fair and Fuller, Butler Brothers, and International Shoe Company. St. Louis offered every imaginable clothing option on the market. By 1950, the St. Louis Garment District was generating $2.2 billion in today's money. The larger department stores hosted fashion shows each season to display the newest line of fashion and clothing and accessories available in their stores. Local newspapers and ladies' guilds were often collaborated with the department stores to make the fashion shows a societal event, similar to a gala. The 1950s saw the development of fashion icon for children, the cherry dress. Created and sold by the St. Louis Women's Exchange, this iconic dress was the standard holiday attire for many children, not only in St. Louis, but nationwide. The dress is a simple white, short-sleeved smock featuring a Peter Pan collar with red piping on the edge. Down the middle of the front of the dress is a row of four hand-sewn cherries. There's also a boy's version in a sailor suit style. Debuting in 1954, the dress was practically famous from the get-go. The original designer and seamstress is not known due to the nature of the women's exchange. The women's exchange allows women to sell crafts and goods at their store and remain anonymous for whatever reason they choose. Today, the current cherry dressmaker is Kathy O'Neill. She makes around 500 dresses each year. Remaining in high demand and constant popularity, the Women's Exchange obtained a patent for the dress in 2016. If you'd like to purchase a cherry dress or a sailor suit for your little one, they're available at the Women's Exchange store or on their website for about $150. I think I'll pass because my children destroy clothes quite quickly. Ironically, this heyday of fashion shows was the beginning and decline of the St. Louis garment industry. 
Since the arrival of labor unions, big companies that were once headquartered in St. Louis began moving their manufacturing plants to smaller, more rural areas where labor was more likely cheaper and where people needed jobs and the unionization of workers was less likely. The focus of our garment industry turned to retail rather than production. But before we get to the decline of the St. Louis garment industry, I'm going to segue one more time um, and talk about the history of the shoe industry in our city. Once dubbed Shoe Street USA, Washington Avenue has a very rich history of shoe manufacturing. In the 1870s, the shoe manufacturing industry began to shift from New England to other areas of the country in search of cheaper labor and materials. In 1872, the Brown brothers moved to St. Louis and opened a shoe warehouse with James Hamilton. The company was known as Hamilton, Brown & Company. They chose St. Louis due to its location and ease of access for supplies. Cowhide was readily available from local farmers, and the proximity to rail lines meant that they could ship their product to anywhere in the country. One of the Brown brothers began working as a clerk for Alvin Bryan. They eventually formed their own shoe company with Jerome DeNoyers called Bryan, Brown & Company. Around 1893, both Hamilton Brown and Brian Brown reorganized into one company, the Brown Shoe Company. In the early 1900s, the shoe industry started changing. Machines took the place of skilled craftsmen and it was easier to mass produce shoes. Also around this time, fashion footwear emerged. Instead of buying shoes only for necessity, people were buying shoes for the sake of fashion. Around 1904, Brown Shoe created a line of children's shoes called Buster Browns. At the 1904 World's Fair, Brown Shoe had an exhibit of a miniature shoe manufacturing plant. Next to their exhibit happened to be a booth with cartoonist Richard Alcott. He was selling licenses for his comic strip. Brown Shoe Company purchased licensing rights for Buster Brown, his dog Tige, and his girlfriend Mary Jane. Buster would be used for the boys' line of shoes and Mary Jane for the girls. And I gotta be honest, the images of Buster Brown are, are terrible. He looks like a creepy little prat, so it's basically little Lord Fauntleroy with a page boy haircut. It's terrible. But that didn't matter. The images and the shoes became very popular. The shoes were styled to fit with a little bit of room for growing, and they were durable enough to pass on to siblings. The marketing campaign for Buster Brown line of shoes was immense. There were newspaper ads, the company hired actors to be Buster Brown and Mary Jane, and would go to conventions and department stores to advertise the product. There's also a line of comic books that was created and sold with every pair of Buster Browns. And in the 1950s, he even had a TV show for a couple of years. By 1958, it was the world's best-selling children's footwear. So in 1905, St. Louis was the third largest shoe industry. It produced one-sixth of all shoes made in America. At the time, St. Louis was home to 14 shoe companies in its headquarters. These companies would have multiple buildings, factories, and warehouses in the city. Different types of shoes were assembled at different plants, and each company would create all the components necessary for the shoes. There was not a lot of outsourcing. So each shoe company would have tanners to make the leather, other craftsmen to manufacture soles, 
various laborers to make shoelaces, buckles, and other accessories, and sewers to assemble the shoe. During the 1910s, the Brown Shoe Head Company had, let's say, some labor relation issues. Um, to maintain a profit and keep overhead costs down, they hired unskilled laborers, mainly women and children, and paid them very low wages. So in 1911, employees made less than $10 a week. And I'm going to assume that they only worked 40 hours. I know that's wrong, but I'm just going to assume that. So their wage would be about $7 an hour in today's money. But perhaps due to the low wages or the sheer popularity of their products, the company prospered and ended up on the New York Stock Exchange in 1913. Both Brown Shoe and International Shoe Company were awarded contracts with the U.S. Army to produce boots and shoes for soldiers going off to fight in World War I. This might have been their saving grace. During the Jazz A's, the hems for women's dresses shortened, and the shoes manufactured at the time became unpopular. They were high boots, and they just wouldn't look good with a flapper dress. Just yuck. So brown shoe found themselves in a situation with overstock, and they were losing profits. So this contract kind of saved their butt. The Great Depression brought more labor issues. The National Labor Board filed suit against Brown Shoe for extremely low wages and other violations of the Wagner Act. At one point, employees were working a 60-hour work week and were paid $3 for the entire week. That's $70 in today's money for a whole week of work, and that equals about $1.16 per hour. So again, the shoe company was saved by government contracts because all branches of the military were gearing up to go fight in World War II. By the mid-1940s and 50s, Brown's shoe began focusing more on retail than production. They were opening stores across the country and began importing shoes rather than making them. At this time, the shoe industry began to decline overall. The modernization of machines required less employees, Importing goods took even more jobs away. By 1960, St. Louis only had five shoe companies that still had headquarters in St. Louis. It once housed dozens of companies. In 1952, Brown Shoe moved its headquarters to Clayton, Missouri. It's uh, in St. Louis County for those people who are not local. Um, and in 2015, it rebranded as Calera's. They also own other companies such as Naturalizer and Dr. Scholl's and still use the name Brown for some lines of shoes. Just as the shoe industry began to decline in the 1950s, so did the entire fashion industry for St. Louis. There are a plethora of reasons why. So during World War II, some plants, as we discussed, altered their entire assembly lines to make products for the war effort, and some of them just never resumed back to normal operations. Changes in technology and machinery required companies to hire fewer employees. And there was an overall change in the industry of how it functioned. Once upon a time, retailers owned and controlled all aspects of creating a garment, from the fabric warehouse to the cutters and designers, all were affiliated with the retail company. So companies began to outsource and contract different elements of the production line. They would obtain fabric from one business, another would assemble the garments, and the retailers would obtain them for public sale. Another thing that led to the decline is the creation of unions. So the companies felt that this cut into their profits, and this created what was 
terribly called the St. Louis idea. Companies would move their plants and warehouses to smaller towns in an attempt to avoid unionization of their workforce. This backfired for most of these companies, um, since creating a union was the first thing that happened in a lot of these small towns. On a personal side note, through my research for this episode, I discovered that my maternal grandmother was part of the ILGWU. She worked in a factory for Angelica Uniform Company in a small town in southern Missouri. Angelica had attempted the St. Louis idea to create small factories throughout rural Missouri, but all of them eventually became part of the ILGWU. The relocation of companies in their headquarters also was part of the decline. As mentioned earlier, the Brown Shoe Company moved from the city to the county, as did Miscellanes. They now operate out of a warehouse in South County. As companies moved from the city, so did the people. The city basically lost its customer base for all of the stores on Washington Avenue. And of course, the development of large discount stores did not help. While big department stores offered sales around the holidays and back to school and various points throughout the year, they could not operate on consistently low discounted items and they couldn't compete with the pricing offered by the new discount stores. The international clothing industry altered supply chain and available goods. Companies were able to import cheaper materials and have their products assembled in another country, reducing the need for physical manufacturing plants in the U.S. There's overall change of dictation for fashion. Women used to listen to designers. They would set styles and colors for each season. Robin's egg blue will be the color for Easter. And this type of hat must be worn in the fall. Now women tell designers and fashion houses what they want. This is exemplified as an overall change in dress, since it's acceptable now to wear much more casual athletic clothing for every day. And lastly, an increased cost of materials cut into profit margins. To turn any kind of profit, companies diversified and began selling not only clothing, but also home goods and furniture. But alas, not all hope is lost. Several groups have been working on redeveloping the garment district and industry in St. Louis. In the 1990s, the Downtown New Development Action Plan began rejuvenation of the garment district. Known as the Washington Avenue Streetscape Project, $17 million of federal and state funding were used to implement new lighting, plazas, and landscaping. Tax credits were created to aid developers in rehabbing and repurposing old warehouse buildings along Washington Avenue. By 2018, all historic buildings on Washington Avenue had been restored or repurposed. In 2019, Downtown St. Louis, Inc. and Downtown Community Improvement District created the Garment District Placemaking Initiative. The main goal was to revitalize the garment district area and create new commercial interest with a focus on fashion. Part of the issue in revitalizing the area entirely as a garment district only is how the modern fashion industry works. At one time, almost all elements were done in-house or at least by the same company in a regional area. Now all components are spread out and at times done so on a global level. There are numerous buildings on Washington Avenue that are used to be active in the garment industry, and it's infeasible for all of them to return to their former glory as fashion houses. 
So to overcome this challenge, the group aims to use existing buildings to create multi-use spaces of residence, hospitality, commercial, office, entertainment, cultural, and education spaces. With a five-year plan, they hope to reestablish Washington Avenue as a true garment district of St. Louis. Another catalyst in the revitalization of the St. Louis garment industry and district is the St. Louis Fashion Fund. Founded in 2014, the Fashion Fund serves as a fashion incubator, supports local designers, and they actually have a retail store. In January 2007, they established their headquarters at 1533 Washington Avenue. Their mission statement is, quote, to enrich St. Louis through business of fashion via three pillars, economic growth and revitalization of St. Louis's garment industry, education and community outreach, and a fashion lab, which is a combination of professional and education opportunities promoting community, collaboration, and connection with the fashion industry, end quote. But St. Louis still has clothing manufacturers. Um, we have Levine Hat Company, Arch Apparel, Miscellane, and new companies are still coming to St. Louis to further the redevelopment of the fashion industry. Evolution St. Louis is a high-tech knitting facility, and in 2020, February, they moved into a 32,000-square-foot facility at 3830 Washington Avenue. They use 3D seamless knitting technology to create various types of fabric and apparel. So once a vibrant scene of innovation, the St. Louis garment and fashion industry came to an end during the mid-20th century. But the outlook is good for a comeback with new designers and companies making their way back to Washington Avenue. Thank you for joining me today. You can find me at the website, showmehistorystl.com. On the Twitter, show me underscore history. And then Facebook, show me history STL. Until next time, I'll see ya in the loo.